Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today's podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Propel by Deloitte. Propel by Deloitte delivers real-time accounting and analytics to support ambitious startups as they grow. On today's episode, we have Katie Marachi, partner at Jamjar Investments. She's got a great history and has joined a firm that has created one of the most memorable brands in, in food and beverage. But I want to hear this story directly from Katie. And so, so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Carlos. So one of the traditions we have on the podcast is we start from the very beginning. What you did when you studied in college and what was your first job? I love that. Um, so I'll start from the very beginning. So I was born in Manchester, which I'm proud of. Still got a bit of a lilt, I hope. And I went to university in Oxford. So I studied human sciences, which is a strange degree. Um, it's the study of people as biological, social and cultural beings. Um, and it's, it's very broad. So it's the only degree at Oxford that has professors from each of the five schools. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, I was always fascinated by people. And that's why I, that's why I did that. But spent most of my time at university um, at the business school instead of doing my degree, <laughs> which was which was interesting and helpful in the end. And so what was that transition into the working world like? Um. Yeah, it was, I mean, so I, when I was at university, I spent a lot of time wondering what I was going to do afterwards. And most of my friends were going into law and banking and I just had a bit of a, an aversion to that. I, I couldn't quite bring myself to do it. It just didn't feel right for me. So um, one of the things I got from the business school was I got to meet amazing speakers, um, one of which was James Kahn. And my first foray into the working world after university was actually doing an internship with him so I didn't really have time to think to be honest I literally started that internship uh, I think it was a week after I graduated moved down to London from Manchester um, and kind of hit the ground running so it was it was exciting and exhilarating I, I, I felt it was much more practical than the academia of Oxford which was really appealing and I loved it I, th I thought the most annoying thing was not being able to have a shower mid-afternoon. I remember loving doing that as a student, suddenly with work. You're a bit more tired to your desk, which I didn't like. And did you work there? I mean, this is the, the James Conn that I'm assuming that we all know and love in, in, in the UK. Is it, did you get to work directly with James? or? Yes, yes, I worked directly with him. So, I mean, there's two James Conns. There's also the James Conn from The Godfather, who's now dead. So it's not that James Conn. It's, it's the, uh, the businessman James Conn, yeah. who was an angel on the Dragon's Den at the time. And, yeah, he came and gave a talk at Oxford, and I chatted to him at the end and basically said, I'd love to work for you. And after a few interviews, I got this internship, and it was reporting directly into him, but I... I had a lovely guy that I worked with day-to-day uh, -day called Stephen. And after the internship, I got his job and he moved up. So that was how it started. And so what was what was the day-to-day the, the -day grind like? I mean, first of all, we all have impressions of what it's like to work, you know, with somebody like him. So maybe walk us through that, that first year, year and a half of, like, cutting your teeth, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, well, when I started working for him, it was within a private equity firm, which he still got called Hamilton Bradshaw. Uh, they mostly invested in 
kind of mid-tier private equity deals um, in terms of size. But my role was to look after his personal angel portfolio, a lot of which was consumer products. So it was an unusual setup because you know most people weren't working on what I was working on. It was a mostly male team of about 30. It was still quite small at that stage um, in a little office in Mayfair. Um, so day to day, it was it was filtering through lots of business plans that he used to see. He used to have a great deal flow um, just because he was on the television, I think, and well-known. Um, and then it was also meeting, it was meeting a lot of the people that he had invested in. So each show would mean that you don't see on the television, but there's a load of stuff that happens outside of what you, what you see. And so the, deal is actually a lot more long-winded than it looks on television and that you know yeah, rumor so, has it it's like some of this stuff is already sorted by the time it hits the tv show yeah exactly there's lots of i mean it's also the opposite is true so there's there's deals that look like they happen on the television but then in the end they don't go through for whatever reason so all the kind of negotiation post-show and um actually sorting everything out that all happens and it's really that all takes a lot of time because there's actually quite a lot of companies um and Anyway, so. And so, you know, one of the things that was interesting about that, the UK in the sort of the 2000 to 2009 era was that there was this conflation of the term venture capital with private equity and that, you know, there's these organizations that are kind of dated now, but that used to sort of conflate the two things. And, and it was because the, the venture capital community was not yet mature enough to be able to sort of parallel it with the United States. Early stage venture is a very unique and, and different thing from private equity. Um, what what was the kind of deal flow that you had with with the Hamilton Bradshaw in that sense? Was it was it what we would call today what you would recognize as venture today, or was it more like this weird blend of PE deals and? No, the stuff I saw was definitely venture, but with the caveat that it was largely not tech, which is unusual. Now most of the stuff I see is tech enabled in some way, whereas his deal flow, because of the nature of the Dragon's Den, there were a lot of products, physical mm. products. Um, but Hamilton Bradshaw in general, mm. as I said, it was more general P style deals, but mm. that wasn't the stuff that I was looking at. And then from if, if you went back with what you know today of how to source, how to select companies and how to give them support, what would you have done differently back then? If you could speak to sort of the Katie of those days, what, what were the things that you've learned in the recent years that, that maybe was lacking back then? The truth is I wouldn't have done anything differently, not because I think I was brilliant at it, but because it was a really amazing and vital part of my learning um, to really start from scratch. So I had no training at that point. I was fresh from university um, and... I was thrown in right at the deep end, you know, talking to CEOs and in some cases sitting on the boards and I didn't have experience. I rely, I was reliant a, a lot on James um, and Stephen, the, the guy that I worked with in the initial period. And, you know, I, I, I learned from them as much as they learned from me. And I think it would, it would be inauthentic to kind of know what I know now. Um, so the, the way I learned the best was not knowing much and, and just mm -hmm. kind of really picking up stuff myself rather than yeah. 
being told what to do. All right, so let me flip it then. Like most people know that they have a superpower, right? And that superpower gets better with age. They just get more mature, just like Superman was, you know, far, far better looking and had better costumes later in life than he did in the very beginning. Same thing. What was the super skill that you had? Um, back then that you now see it was something that in development and that they yeah. relied on you? I think that's such an interesting question and I, I spent a lot of time asking myself that in the first few years. So kind of, God, I'm lucky. Um, this is great. Um, why am I doing this? What, what, you know, why me? And, you know, firstly, I think luck does play a part of it. And secondly, I think I've learned over time um, that I'm good at getting shit done. Um, and I don't ask too many questions, which I think is really useful. Um, Not in a podcast, though. That, that's a pretty shitty skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think getting shit done. And um, also, I really like people, which I think helps. And I think I often have instincts about people. Um, and the reality is, venture capital is, is a lot about people. Um, so probably those two. But, I mean, the truth is my background is... You know, my degree, etc., was it was a very analytical, uh, really, in terms of um, human genetics and statistics. So, you know, I do enjoy that element as well. But I think lots of people can do that bit. Mm. Well, I think you bring up an interesting topic, which is people and how to manage people and how to work with people and how to be part of a, a, cons- a sort of advisory board for people, and. Jam Jar is, is the story behind that is, and I'll let you tell the story, but the story behind that clearly comes from the innocent drink success. But again, it's a brand that connected with people. And, you know, maybe we're skipping around a little bit here. We can revisit the story of innocent in a second. But with founders you work with, how much are people's skills a factor in their success? Of the ones that you've seen be the most successful, how much would you rank people skills over let's say metrics or over um you know the the the, some of the other attributes that are usually looked for in a a company i think that is such an interesting question and the truth is i think there's more than one way to skin a cat in terms of how successful founders look and their profiles so do i think it is helpful to have great people skills a hundred percent do i think there has to be great people skills somewhere on the team a hundred percent does it necessarily have to be the founder no um there are great founders that i know of who i don't think their greatest skill is their people skills and sometimes the flip side of not having great people skills is you can be immensely focused and you know be extremely analytical and logical and sometimes that doesn't always chime best with emotional people in terms of communication so I don't think it's absolutely essential but I think it's very helpful and I think it is essential that somebody on the top team has it so if I think to be honest self-awareness is probably more important and if you're self-aware enough to realize that people skills aren't your forte then having someone beside you that has them is the next best thing. Mm. So in the context of innocent drinks and how you got there yeah and you can maybe explore that. So walk us through what happened after you left Hamilton Bradshaw and then how you ended up at Innocent Drinks, what you did, and then the people element of that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I have an unusual background because I left Hamilton Bradshaw after three years. So two years I looked after the portfolio and a year I spent basically as the CRO of a business James was launching. Um, And I then decided to go into journalism um, which was a strange decision, but it, it was 
what I wanted to do. So I joined the BBC and worked in television. Um, so I trained as a, I trained in production and I, I worked in BBC London Factual and then got a job on the one show as a researcher, which was actually amazing. Uh, Covered volcanoes? That was the latter thing that I did. Initially, I was on the one show and then I moved on to Volcanoes Live, which was within BBC London Factual. Um, yeah, bizarrely actually does have stuff in common with VC in terms of you've got to really get to know people very quickly on the basis of meeting them maybe once or twice, reading their book, and then you've got to ask a load of questions and kind of try and dig in. Um, plus, again, you've got to get shit done quickly. You know, you're making a show from scratch within three days. So I think just the practical side of entrepreneurship is is has, has stuff in common, weirdly. Anyway, so I did that for a few years and I mean, I quickly realised that it wasn't for me, um, which was why I moved shows because I wanted to check if it was just that show or if it was general, but I, f- I found it very uncommercial and I missed the commercial world, but I'd got it out of my system because I'd, I'd always thought business or television and I didn't want to be on my deathbed wondering if I should have gone into television. So tried it, didn't like it, um, decided I wanted to go back into business as it were and looked up the fastest growing companies of the last, small to medium companies of the last 10 years um, and just circled the brands I liked. Um, and I remember I, 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 it was a strange approach. I've always been very kind of brand sensitive and I think I also had the, the confidence and insight to not restrict myself by what I'd done before or by job title. So instead I went for brands that I liked and then once I found brands that I liked, I looked at the jobs that were available irrelevant to job title. So I read the descriptions and thought, could I do this? Um, which I found really liberating, to be honest. Anyway, so one of the companies that I liked was Innocent Drinks. I thought it was an incredible brand. And I applied for a job which was largely uh, data orientated. So it was called category management. It was basically analysing and assessing the market. So huge volumes of data and trying to spot patterns and look at trends um, within the market and share those with Innocent and retailers. So anyway, got that job and started at Innocent. Um, it, as I said, that th- this was one of this was one of the times in my life that I realised what I was good at, um, which I think is people. And there was virtually no people in that job. It was a lot of data, and I was all right at it. But I I felt I can do this, but I'm not excelling at this. I didn't really enjoy it. It it, it just wasn't for me. Um, so I quickly thought. I'm going to have to move either horizontally or or leave Innocent, which would have been a shame because Innocent is an incredible company. It's extremely well run and it's a bit like a mini MBA. I mean, there's so many people that come out of Innocent and start amazing businesses, largely, I think, because of the transparency there. Um, that helps. Anyway, the, one of the great things about it is it's easy to move horizontally there. So, So I thought, well, that would be the most obvious thing. So what else is available? So I, so I was having a look around and I started realising that actually I really, really missed VC and, and you know, I'd kind of come full circle and I, I realised all the amazing things about it and I was lucky enough to know that one of, the fa- one of the founders of Innocent at the time was on a show called BBC Three called Be Your Own Boss and he was publicly investing in companies 
a bit similar to Dragon's Den. And I just thought I'd love to know more about that. Obviously, that's something I've got a background in. Um, and I started chatting to him one lunchtime as I was reading my bank statements at a picnic table outside on a summer's day. And I told him a bit about my background. He told me a bit about what he was doing. And next thing he said, I'd love you to meet my investment manager. So I met her the following week. She was a lovely lady called Charlotte and she was heavily pregnant. Um, and that meeting turned out to be an interview. And at the end of it, I said, I'd love to work with you and help you out. And she said, I was hoping you'd say that. Um, and within two weeks of that meeting, we had entirely kind of, she'd left and I'd taken on her role. So I was doing 80% investment management, 20% category management. So my whole role completely shifted. And um, that was how I started working with the Innocent Drinks founders. So, so I, I then worked with them for a year, double hatting. So they'd been investing as angels for five years. They had amazing deal flow from other entrepreneurs and other investors. Um, it, was, it was naturally, initially it was more food and drink bias, but over time it was clear it was, it was much more general consumer and there was a lot of tech coming in just because a lot of the market is tech. Um, and they sold Innocent in 2013 to Coca-Cola. So they were still running Innocent up until that point. And suddenly they had a lot more time, a lot more money to do what they wanted full time. And and they loved venture and investing. And, and that's where they decided they wanted to commit their time. And they asked me to go with them. That was 2013. We formally launched Jamjar. But to some extent, you, would already, you were already doing the job. So it's just a formality around the the title and the sort of structure for it. Yes. We, yeah, we were already doing it at Innocent, but the guys went from being part-time to full-time. Yeah. That, that was a change. Was there and any other major change? I mean, other than sort of part-time, full-time, was there any sort of culture change or was there any kind of like... Office change. So we moved out of Innocent. We got our own office. Yeah. Um, we... We... we started being more public about what we were doing so we still don't particularly do press but you know we, we started being on the scene more rather than just relying on what was sent to us anyway we started saying to people this is what we're doing so it just got a lot more focus mm -hmm. and attention but it wasn't a, it wasn't a seismic shift it was a natural progression mm. yeah no, it's, it's a very interesting story and one that probably would have been impossible to replicate if it weren't for the fact that it was born from within the organization, right? And and I, I want to go back to this idea of, of people um, and, and some of the learnings you picked up from Innocent. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I get the vibe that James Kahn's organization, the culture there, is probably a sharp contrast from the culture and organization of Innocent. Is that a fair statement or is that...? Oh, definitely. They're very different. And so... And you were doing investment roles in both. So, you know, I'm trying to like uh, gingerly walk around the, the, the sensitive topic, or maybe it isn't, I don't know, but basically trying to get a feeling for how do different investment cultures dictate what kind of founders want to work with you and what kind of support the partners give to those founders as a function of where their origin, their culture is. Yes. I mean, I, I think it also links to different styles of entrepreneurship. In all cases, there are entrepreneurs who've become investors. And I think 
that is the foundation of their different styles. So in James's instance, he was a sole founder. Um, you know, he's got an amazing story where, you know, he left school at 15 with no qualifications and started a business from a broom closet with, you know, no money. He didn't come from a wealthy background and he literally created something out of nothing with the yellow pages. Um, so that kind of strength of character and independence of thought and self-reliance is indicative of somebody with that story. And, you know, that's a particular type of person that Innocent Drinks founders, there were three of them, they were best friends at university. They really are kind of each other's opposites in many respects. So they all have different strengths. And I think that's why I work well with them because I also have different strengths different different strengths and I think that that combination of almost a group of people amounting to one very competent profile is different to someone like James who I think um, was much more self-reliant um, so so how was a how would a founder styles. experience both like was it is so, it like from a board perspective from a negotiation perspective yeah how's that so i think firstly in negotiation the terms of deals that we did are very different um so james is an exceptional negotiator i think the best negotiator i've ever met in my life he's a brilliant salesman he's extremely charming he also television has this weird impact on people where it's it's kind of uber intimidating to many people to see someone that's been on the television even though you could see the exact same profile person and not have the same um it wouldn't have the same effect so i think going into negotiations it james already often had an idea of what he wanted to get out of them and he would often achieve that whereas the jam jar culture it's created to be extremely entrepreneur friendly from the beginning we don't really negotiate in truth that i mean there's a bit but largely it's just you know ideally we don't ask for any kind of funny terms we just want to be on the same terms as founders so it's so even from that initial stage it's there's a difference and then in terms of help i think there's i mean obviously with jam jar there's more people there's a variety of skill sets. James is, James had a super spike in sales skills. As I said, he was absolutely brilliant at that. And so a lot of the help he could give was around that. And he was also a very creative deal structurer. So in terms of help with commercials, James was uber brilliant. With Jamjar, there's probably more variety. So operations, branding, commercials. Um, so different, but, but both helpful in different ways. And where do you feel that you enjoy giving time to founders when you work with them? What are the, what are the areas that you feel that you, you know, if, if, if I were to market Katie and be like, you know, you really need to work with Katie because she's going to help you with fill in the blank. Um, so I think, I think we're really good early on, which is where we like to invest in being a sounding board for brands. So I personally love having input on that. Uh, whether I'm listening to or not is is you know open the reality is we back founders to make decisions so we're never going to tell you what to do and i'm never going to think i know best but i'll have a view um and i love that element of things helping to shape consumer experiences so product we you know we and i personally spend a lot of time 
when we're looking at businesses, looking at the product itself rather than the ambition of the product. So the product as it exists, how does it feel? What you know, what are the areas that could be improved? All of that kind of touchy feely stuff I love. Um, as well as, you know, I, I think I have a good network in terms of helping people to raise money and matching people correctly, etc. In some cases I help to interview people. So the the people element, strategy element and branding one of the great things that you guys have as an experience to, to dig into is this F&B and um, branding and product making experience and with that comes an understanding of what amount of money to spend to build a brand and and how those two things correlate and other investors might be intimidated by that you know the cost of building a brand a, a BDC facing brand walk us through some of the metrics that you feel um, are acceptable to you that may not be acceptable to other investors as part of that brand building. So, for example, you know, I was I was chatting with the founder of HelloFresh uh, recently, and you know, he was sharing with me stories of things that they did, you know, um, and the challenges of, of how do you choose to spend on this versus that. You know, when you when you're a B two B software company, you can spend a lot a lot of time just investing in tech and R and D, and and maybe you have a sales team, but with with brands that you know you need to get people to try you need that person to try it how does an investor with your background allow or 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 encourage certain kinds of spend behaviors and marketing behaviors that other investors would just be too scared to do Mm. no it's interesting firstly i think there's a lot of culture around spending money in the early days that we don't actually always agree with so the best marketing is free marketing which i think people often forget especially in the early days the longer you go on the harder and harder that becomes to solely rely on that but in the early days there's so much you can do for free that i think people forget in terms of generating pr and you know um a mention in the right article can make a huge amount of difference and be completely free rather than, you know, giving all the money to Mark Zuckerberg. So I think never forget the things that you can do for free. And especially in physical product, I think people often forget the value of the physical product itself. So with something like Grays, obviously it's sold online, but the reality is the packaging is marketing. So when you see a Grays box sitting on somebody's desk, at work and it's often consumed at work that's marketing and it's free you know what you put on the front of your packaging is free it's a free advert um and so i think before anyone spends anything they should really try and be creative about all the ways that and creative things you can do for free um and then when you move on to more um yeah performance driven marketing i think for us, it's quite simple. It's about the ratio of things. So you can spend a lot on marketing if you've got a high product value, if you've got a high lifetime value. And, you know, it's interesting using the example of another of our investments, Simba Sleep. It's a very high value purchase. And because of that, it gives you a huge amount of spend that, that you can afford to spend on marketing. You contrast that to something like... Um, graze.com which is you know it's a it's a three pound product versus a 600 pound product so it's they've got very different marketing profiles but for us we're not intimidated by large numbers in themselves it all depends on the ratios of how much you're spending to how much profit you'll make from from the products mm. okay so it, it it depends is the answer yeah all right so let me push back on that and ask you to list 
if we were to write on the board, Katie's top five rules for starting a brand, what mm. would they be? Oh, um, you can whittle it down to three or five is too many. But the top three or five top rules for building a brand. This would be your new blog post, by the way. I think number one is be authentic. Try and look the same from the outside as you are on the inside. So that consistency is so valuable and it's much easier said than done. But, you know, take the time to think about who you are and what you stand for. And I personally think that is better to come from within. I'm a big fan of listening to your customers and communicating with customers. But, you know, people forget that if Steve Jobs would have asked people if they wanted an iPod, they would have said, no, we don't. You know, he would, they would have looked at the MP3 market. Like, sometimes people don't know what they want. And I think the, the most inspiring founders, they have a sense of what the future is going to look like and they craft that future. So I think be confident in yourself and try and craft in the initial stages rather than having too many people inputting. Try and craft something authentic and consistent. So your values match the products, match what you're creating. You know, if if um, if ethics are, and providence are a large part of your brand, then be really careful about where you source things from. Taking the time at the beginning to build things properly makes for uh, truer brands that connect with people better and I think people connect to authenticity so that will be my number one authentic transparent consistent brands does that count as one that's uh, one that's one you don't get three that uh, is one yeah that's one and what else would I say number two number two something I've commented on before but be really creative about what you can do for free in terms of getting the word out there. Um, and in brackets, be creative in general. But just this week, I was talking to the, one of the founders of the Go Com, um, Compare the Market brand. And he was telling me they, have, they had a real difficulty in the initial stages with um, standing out versus the other comparison sites. And they all sound pretty similar, etc. And... They came up with this crazy concept of compare the market, compare the meerkat and giving out these meerkat toys. And initially it, it, it also had a, an added dimension that they wanted to know which customers had actually followed through, through their website rather than losing them um, to, the, to the suppliers. So anyway, th this meerkat toy idea sending customers toys initially started as a way to stop leakage because they would customers would ring up and say where's my meerkat and they would know whether they had, that customer had been correctly attributed to them or not and whether they'd been paid for that customer but anyway in the end it took on a total life of, of its own and people were using their website just so they could get this toy they were the second largest importer of toys from china in the country after disney and this was all this crazy idea of, of a meerkat toy, which actually was a marketing tool, which you would never, you know, a lot of corporates would have been scared to try that kind of strategy. So yeah, I think be crazy, be creative, try things. If anything you can do for free, do it. Um, so that would be my number two, be number creative two. and get stuff for free. Um, and number three would be probably around recruitment I think especially in consumer facing brands your your early team are your advocates so recruit the right people that's that match your brand values that are, that 
are passionate about whatever it is that you're doing and encourage that passion. So, you know, I, I met a business recently um, and they, they sell a great product, but, the, you know, one of the first things we said to them was, you should be giving this product out for free to your employees. You should be giving them the service so that they tell all their friends about it. They're your greatest advocates and they're kind of on your doorstep. So I think recruiting the right people and having the right HR strategy around culture and building advocacy for that product from within each of you know each employee knows 50 people and those 50 people know another 50 people and that comes back to kind of grassroots marketing I think start with what's in front of you and um and build from within that's a good one so what do you reckon you're gonna go for four and five or are you gonna leave it at three uh four and five I think number four it's I mean it's something I'm sure lots of people say but be super on top of your metrics in terms of performance marketing. Um, be really, really micro in terms of how you look at different channels and different campaigns. And I think I often see the mistake of people will try a channel with a specific message and they won't, they, you know, from, from our perspective, they won't really vary the messaging. They'll think that they are, but actually they're just doing small tweaks. They're not really having different concepts that they're trying through a single channel. And then they'll come and say, you know, oh, that channel doesn't work for us. And actually, again, it comes down to creativity. I think you do, you need to try different concepts and different messaging within a channel to really understand whether it works or not. So... Um, you know, I'm all for going for the lowest hanging fruit and if something works, go for it and don't don't waste money on other things. But you should always be testing in the background and don't give up on a channel through lack of creativity. Um, so, yeah, be, really be on top of performance marketing micrometrics to understand what works and what doesn't. Mm. Um, so that would be my number four. And number five would be... In some ways, it's the most important, I think. Again, potentially pretty obvious, but spend the time on the product. Like, the the product is the brand, often, and people forget that. You know, you can spend a long time crafting how something looks or sounds rather than what it actually is. Um, so, you know, what often across companies, one of the best marketing videos is just an unboxing experience, just what is it? And I think brands often make the mistake of too early, they go for kind of abstract messaging, um, trying, you know, trying to do some creative and funny, which is great. But the the, the first messaging, for, which really is often the first couple of years in reality is, what are you? Just tell people what you are. Um, don't overcomplicate it. Um, you know, don't, don't try and do wordplays. Just what are you? Um, so yeah, famous. that's a great list. Totally, we totally have to make that into a blog post. That's a great list. <laughs> well, if I play with the one that you gave uh, regarding compare the market and the meerkat, and we look back and we look at the sort of virality that that had, it was possible partially because they had the balance sheet to manage the inventory of these plush toys. But I've seen companies, I've seen actually one of our companies attempted to do something like that. And it was a distraction. Um, so I'll give you the exact circumstances uh, without telling you the name of the company out of respect for them. But basically it was a company that was doing a service, let's say, let's say a fintech service. 
and then they gave away a physical product that had nothing to do with that fintech service. And it was it proved popular because it was funny, it was whatever. And the problem became that their day-to-day operations were behind fulfilling this viral channel rather than working on the product. And so I think it's it's a tricky one to balance. And when the time for these kinds of viral loops is right, because you could easily burn maybe not just money, but also founder time on something that isn't the product. And how, how does Jamjar, for example, encourage and discourage this balance? So I think there's two things. I think firstly, you've got to have the right team structure to be able to handle what you're, what you're going to do. And that's very important. And yeah, as an adjacency, I'd relate that to crowdfunding. People often come to us and say, should we do crowdfunding? You know, from my perspective, I think crowdfunding is great, but you have to manage it properly. It's not a campaign that runs itself. And it's the same with some, you know, with a, with something that has physical product, especially if you're not a physical product business. You've got to have the right capability internally to be able to manage that and don't embark on it if, if you can't. Um, so I think that would be the first thing. And the second thing would be coming back to some to what I said earlier about micromanaging channels and metrics you need to make sure that it works in terms of the cost of what you're doing and the true cost. Not, I don't just mean in, in that example, the cost of the toy. I mean, the cost of the toy, the cost of shipping the toy, the distraction in the team or the resource that you're dedicating to that. Does it work? Do, do the economics work to make it worth your while? Um, and, you know, you can take account of how your repeat rate is impacted, etc. But I think you've, yeah, you've really got to test and manage these things properly. Otherwise, they can be disastrous. Of the companies that you've worked with, because you've worked with some amazing brands. Thank you. Which one has challenged you the most? Maybe not just challenged, but the one that's challenged your perceptions of those five rules, of Katie's five rules. Which one of those either helped craft those rules the most, or which one's the one that challenged them or challenged you the most? And if you can share the story of, of one, of how that happened. Yeah. I actually think Tails.com is a really interesting example of of a few breaking of those rules and a, a few proving of those rules and potentially a few uh, kind of reprioritization of those rules. So Tails.com was founded by a brilliant founder who founded Grays.com. Um, and actually he's extremely analytical and brilliant, but he, he didn't have a dog um, and he wasn't particularly into dogs. So it's it, Tails.com is tailored pet food. Um, so, you know, the classic kind of, oh, it's, you've got to have that internal passion. That, that wasn't his background, but he had the self-awareness to know that. And one of the first people he recruited to join him as a co-founder was a vet. So I think a new, potentially unusual in that what he was doing wasn't something that resonated with him personally, but he saw the potential of it and he had the self-awareness to partner with somebody that did understand it. Um, so, so that's that's quite interesting in itself. The the MD of Tails.com now is actually a gentleman that used to work at Innocent, um, who's who's brilliant and absolutely adores dogs. Um, and the original founder is now the chairman, and still really useful. Um, so, you know, I think that over time it did become more difficult to run a business that you're not way way where you don't relate to the product as much and so I think that was a natural evolution that works really well um, 
I also think Tails.com is a really good example of the importance of product. So it is a brilliant product and people love it. And it, especially initially, it wasn't a particularly warm and fuzzy brand. Um, you know, if you look at the incumbents, so the whiskers, etc., they're very cute. Uh, they've got cute pictures and, you know, they're quite soft brands. And uh, Tails.com didn't start like that at all, um, but it still did incredibly well because it was a brilliant product, I think. Um, and so you don't have to have all the pieces in place from the start. And again, product win, product wins out. So if, if you have something brilliant and you can tell people that you exist, their initial marketing was just quite simple. You know, this is what we are and this is what we do. And they knew from early on that giving away samples was really important. So getting people into a habit and allowing them to try the product, let the product speak for itself. Um, so I think that was an example of that as well. Mm. That's a good example. Well, we always like to, to wrap up with some fun sort of random questions. And um, uh, first one is, what's left on your bucket list? Uh, I'd love to go to the Grand Canyon. So it's a tra travel uh, yeah, I'd love to go to the Grand Canyon. Um, wingsuit with a wingsuit or uh, off the Grand Canyon? Yeah, maybe I'll be a bit scared to be in a helicopter after recent events, but... Uh, oh, what, what were recent events? Oh, a, um, a helicopter of people died really? in the Grand Canyon. What? They, yeah, they crashed. Yeah, it's in all the papers. Um, but no, I, I'd love to see that. What else? Is I, was, I was there more than a decade ago, and I just remember... It's, it's so big that you actually cannot, your eyes cannot comprehend this magnitude, so it looks two-dimensional. It doesn't look, wow. it doesn't look three-dimensional. It looks like you can't tell what's, what's a small rock because it's small, or it's a small rock because it's like so far away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's up there. Um, if, if we look back on 2018, 50 years from now, and we compare it to the way that we look back 100 years ago and we think, my goodness, can't believe slavery was going on, or we can't believe that you know child labor was going on. What will we look back fifty years from now and think? Two thousand eighteen. I can't believe we were doing this. I think we won't believe that women were paid less than men. Um, I was actually thinking about this the other day, and I think it actually it's entirely logical why we're at this point because if if you look at the history of employment, there was a time when the culture was such that women didn't work, and so. The, the man being the breadwinner was was the status quo and therefore they had to be paid and compensated to look after a family, you know, even if it wasn't for that purpose when somebody's giving someone a pay rise or whatever, they're, at the back of their mind is always somebody's personal circumstance in reality because people are people. So I think the situation we're in now, that ma you know, that, that status quo has massively changed and after the Second World War, you know, women came into the workforce and are never going to leave but so I think the situation we're in now is a hang-up from that period um in part and I think in 50 years time you know the things will have caught up and it, it doesn't make any sense that two people are paid differently for the same thing which is a situation we appear to be in um what's something you like that most people don't uh, can't say marmite <laughs> I love Jam on Weetabix. Jam on Weetabix? Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> Weetabix are those like square things, right? Yeah, cereal. Oh, you put the, put the, so you put the jam with the milk and cereal? Just you separate. put the jam, you spread the jam a bit like on toast and then you pour the milk on top. Delicious. Really? Yeah. 
Huh. I also, I have a weird um, lack of care about when I eat things that I like. So, you know, a lot of people, they have this shock of, oh my God, you can't have that for breakfast. But for me, if I like it, I like it. If, if there's roast chicken and potatoes available, I'll have it for breakfast. Um, so I don't have this, I don't put the same restrictions on myself as some people do about when they eat what they love. Um, well, I, uh, I totally agree with that. I, I end up always uh, eating warmed up Indian food leftovers that I love, so I can mm. totally relate to that. <laughs> Me um, too. Yeah, you do. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I love it. Um, well, this is why I love living in the UK. There's so many great Indian restaurants here. Um, well, thanks so much for joining us. I know that it's been a, a journey that we could have possibly continued for, for another couple of hours with all the companies that you've invested in. But um, it was great to get that insight and really, really cool hearing that list of Katie's top five ways of thinking through a brand. So hopefully we'll we'll summarize those and put them in the show notes and then uh, we'll put your LinkedIn and, and other contact bio for people to get in touch with you for investment. So uh, in general, just thanks for joining us. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.